Hello, and welcome to MGMA Small Talk, where we discuss issues facing practice administrators across the healthcare world. I'm Shannon Geis, staff writer and editor at MGMA, and today I'm speaking with Catherine Wickenhauser, a regulatory compliance advisor with Datafile Technologies. Catherine is leading a session at the 2017 MGMA Annual Conference titled Violation or Breach, Identify and Report HIPAA Incidents. She's here with us today to talk about how medical practices can protect themselves from common HIPAA violations and more. First, if you would just maybe tell us a little bit about your your background and, and sort of your um, your experience. So I am the Regulatory Compliance Advisor at Datafile Technologies, and Datafile is a business associate. We do a lot in the health information management realm. So my role as the Regulatory Compliance Advisor is really first and foremost to keep a pulse of what's going on in the industry and ensure that as a business associate that we're providing compliance services to our clients, but also to give them expert knowledge and education and serve as a resource for them. Our tagline is cultivating and connecting healthcare data experts. So that's part of my role is really to curate and get that important information out there to our clients. And then even beyond that, doing external education at events like MGMA to be able to keep an idea of what's going on and curate content um, so that way busy practice administrators and office managers can really get all the information that they need at one time. Um, With healthcare changing so much, it's really difficult to have any idea what's going on at, at some point. So I pride myself on trying to do that and keep in touch with all the changes within the industry and and be able to effectively communicate those when needed. The session that you are leading at MGMA uh, 17 is violation or breach, identify and report HIPAA incidents. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about um, what sort of the difference is between a breach, a violation, or an incident and you know, why we should be really making a um, distinction between those things? Sure. So I think working in a healthcare practice or organization, we've all experienced a situation where something has gone to the wrong place. And then it's kind of that question of, well, what do we do? How do we protect the PHI that maybe fell into the wrong hands? What do we do that's in the best interest of the patient and the organization? So The situation with breaches and violations has come to light a little bit again more recently with the Office of Civil Rights Additional Guidance on Right to Access Standards just about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago. Um, So I find from working with different healthcare organizations that sometimes there's confusion about, okay, well, what is actually a breach? What's, What's a healthcare breach? And we're hearing this term much more frequently. But when it comes to unauthorized disclosures, I feel that we can break it down into three different camps. And I use a stoplight analogy. So for instance, um, an incident. So we'll start there. So an incident would kind of be that green light with a stoplight where a situation might be brought to your attention and it's a cause for pause. So something has caused you to stop and look at it more distinctly and see if there's something going on, if, if perhaps there was an unauthorized disclosure of protected health information. But in looking at the situation and investigating it, you find that actually, no, it, it was an appropriate authorization. So an example might be um, you have records that you send out 
for a patient, but perhaps there was a restriction for dates on those records and accidentally records outside of that date range were sent. But when you become aware of the situation and you start researching it, investigating it, you find that actually you had a separate valid authorization that included those dates. So you find as an organization you're actually okay and it was not an unauthorized disclosure. Still maybe shouldn't have happened, an opportunity to look back at your protocols and your procedures and see if you could prevent this from happening in the future. But ultimately, that would not be an unauthorized disclosure, so that would be a green light. So then moving kind of to the next step, a violation would be that yellow light on a stoplight. The violation is a non-reportable unauthorized disclosure. So PHI might have been sent out on accident, an unauthorized recipient received that information, but overall the organization can demonstrate a low risk of compromise to the PHI and to the patient. So, for instance, if records were sent to a covered entity, that covered entity is legally obligated to protect that PHI. So, anytime there's a situation where the unauthorized recipient is a covered entity, that is automatically a violation, and that violation does not need to be reported to OCR at the end of the year. Something that can also be in the violation camp would be if there is an unauthorized recipient, and that unauthorized recipient returns a confidentiality statement, essentially saying that they've destroyed the PHI securely or that you've received it back, maybe they mail it back to you, and they will not further disclose or do anything with that PHI. So ultimately, if you can show that low probability of compromise to the PHI or something that sometimes we call low pro-co, low probability of compromise, um, you can classify that as a violation instead of a breach. And then ultimately, the red light would be a breach. So an unauthorized disclosure of protected health information, and this does have to be reported to HHS and OCR at the end of the year, as well as the patient. So this would be a situation where there's an unauthorized recipient or you become aware that the records did not reach their intended destination and you cannot demonstrate that low probability of compromise. Maybe the unauthorized recipient wouldn't return the records or would not return a confidentiality statement or many other situations where you're just unable to prove that there's a low probability of compromise. So this would be a red in that stoplight analogy. And this ultimately, again, you would have to report at the end of the year. Um, and so what are some of the most common You've kind of mentioned some examples, obviously, but um, what are the common places where these kinds of things happen? Um, is there certain um, scenarios that you see happening more often or things that practices should really be looking out for specifically? Certainly. So one thing that I think is really interesting just over time and kind of the advent of EHRs is that we've seen this shift in how violations and breaches, but mainly violations are occurring. So in the past, what we've seen, and we still see, miskeyed faxes. So sending mm -hmm. something and accidentally typing in the wrong number, transposing two numbers, um, or even a situation where you might look up a fax number and maybe it's not the correct number that the patient authorized you to send those records to. So this was certainly how a lot of violations happened in the past. And we still see violations and unauthorized disclosures are happening through those miskeyed 
fax numbers. But with EHRs, I feel that the tide has kind of turned, and now more than ever what we're seeing is misfiled information in the patient's chart is creating the violation. So if we think about the influx of data that comes in, be it electronic fax or scanning, scanning something into our system, and then we have Mm -hmm. this batch document of information and there's multiple patients in it, we need to divvy that out to the appropriate patient chart. Well, it's very easy to accidentally put something in the wrong patient's chart electronically. And so as a result, what we're seeing is when release of information happens and PHI is sent to another person or organization, occasionally there might be one page in that chart that's not for that correct patient. So at this point, I would say just with EHRs and all of the data influx that we have and that we've been seeing, that's probably the most common type of violation and something that I think gets overlooked a lot for practices mitigating risk and thinking about, okay, well, how do these unauthorized disclosures occur? Yeah. So um, what are some of the things that um, practice can do to try and uh, protect against that or, or avoid those kinds of situations? Sure. So certainly developing strong policies and procedures and following them. I think that's really the key is ensuring that you are following what you said you're going to do and committing to it. So one practice that I like is auditing a specific amount of the information that you're sending out. You don't necessarily have to. There's no requirement that you need to audit every single page of PHI that walks out your door. That can be extremely cumbersome and take a lot of time for practices. But coming up with a policy, for instance, maybe you do 20%. You audit 20% of the pages, and that's a random 20% of what you're sending out, as well as the first page and the last page for that patient, that can prevent a lot of misfiled information from going out your door. Same thing with miskeyed faxes. We talked about how that's a common type of violation. Verifying that the fax number on the authorization from the patient is the correct number that you're typing in. Just putting these little policies and procedures into place and then ensuring that you follow them will be a huge step in ensuring that you don't have a lot of unauthorized disclosures. And you talked about EHRs already a little bit, but what is, uh, what is the effect of new technology having on dealing with PHI and avoiding HIPAA violations? Sure. I feel like every, we're always hearing about new, new EHR systems or new patient portals, and, but how can those affect the way we deal with um, our PHI? Sure. Uh, this has definitely been a hot topic. And part of it, I think, is that we've had this stark contrast from a paper realm to an EHR realm. And really this has been happening within the past 10 years. We haven't been fully embedded in this EHR realm really until meaningful use kind of pushed the envelope in 2011. And we're still getting our EHRs up to speed. We're still learning how to use them. And now with other pay for performance programs like MIPS and meaningful use, there's an emphasis for patients to be able to access their health information and to make that health information accessible. So some information is available through patient portals, and occasionally we hear about misfiled documents that show up in that patient portal. So that's another way that we might have an unauthorized disclosure, something being in the wrong chart and then being accessible to that patient. But we also have to consider that not everything is available to the patient through the patient portal. 
So just like we talked about some of those file documents or even still having paper documents, when we get an authorization from a patient and we need to fulfill a records request, we need to look at all records, not just EHR records, um, but, but all of that patient health information, that protected health information that we have. So it's almost created more work in a sense right now with just different technology systems. And hopefully at some point we might see some streamlining, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Another really interesting area to look at, the hot topic, the big buzzword, interoperability, right? We've all heard about interoperability. But one area that hasn't really been talked about and is something that I'm interested in and that Datafile is interested in as a whole, just kind of looking at and seeing what opportunities are there, is with that non-TPO piece. So with HIPAA, if you're a HIPAA nerd, you know TPO stands for Treatment Payment Operations. So you don't need an authorization from a patient to be able to transfer that information back and forth among covered entities. Um, but with interoperability, what about utilizing HIEs and enterprise data warehouses to fill other requests that are non-TPO, that are not treatment payment authorization requests? Um, so you could have a patient who might need records for a life insurance uh, request, for setting up life insurance or for an attorney. And being able to have some human component and some HIPAA component to verify an authorization to get in there um, and, and look at what information is in this enterprise data warehouse or HIE and be able to fulfill the request. I think that is possibly an opportunity where it could help fund interoperability. We look at money talks and, and what is the cost for putting up this interoperability kind of highway that we need to connect providers. And maybe that's an opportunity for us to really think about interoperability a little bit different and fund HIEs, fund enterprise data warehouses. So technology and looking at PHI and HIPAA violations, there's certainly a component to that, especially with interoperability that I think we're maybe starting to think about, but there's not a lot of conversation around it right now. So that's an area I would look to in the future. Yeah, definitely. Another, um, hot topic, uh, especially very recently, is dealing with um, potential outside hacks. Do you have any thoughts on how practices can try to make sure their uh, PHI is secure from that kind of um, external breach? Oh, I think we could host a week-long session on that. Um, it, it certainly is a hot topic. It's something we keep on hearing about with different ransomware attacks and malware attacks. I think looking at distributing PHI just as a whole, um, when you do distribute it, it's great if it can be encrypted. The more you can protect it, the more you can minimize your chance of compromise if it gets into the wrong hands. But something that's interesting that's come about in the past year with the right to access clarification and guidance is that PHI does not necessarily have to be encrypted if it's distributed. The patient can say, no, I understand that there's a risk uh, if it's not encrypted email or if I can't accept an encrypted USB drive or CD drive. But when we can encrypt and we can add that extra layer of security and safety, we certainly should. So if organizations are just kind of 
putting information on a USB drive or CD drive or even just emailing and not consider the encrypted component, they certainly should consider that as a whole to make PHI more secure. There's a lot of conversation out on that um, with security risk analysis and NIST standards versus ISO standards, and there being some guidance and, and some set standards, but at the same time, there is not an end-all, be-all, one single thing uh, for being secure. It, it's definitely changing. So if I could offer a piece of advice in that realm, it just would be to continually assess and look for your opportunities for improvement. There are always going to be opportunities for improvement. No one is completely 100% HIPAA safe. There, there is no stamp or golden seal, if you will, to say, okay, everything is all good. It, there's always an opportunity for improvement. At the mm -hmm. same time, I don't think that our overseeing entities like HHS expect us to be perfect. They realize that we're constantly in flux and that healthcare is an industry. There are costs associated to ensuring PHI is secure. Um, so just keeping that in consideration that what is necessary um, and looking at where your biggest cost benefit is. And if you can't put something into place, is it reasonable and appropriate for you not to do that? The big term that we see a lot in HIPAA is reasonable and appropriate. So when we're not able to do something, making a statement as to why it's not reasonable and appropriate for us at that point. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, any other uh, specific advice you would you'd give for practices in order to sort of stay on top of, of HIPAA and protecting their PHI? Or anything else that we haven't maybe uh, mentioned so far yet? Sure. Um, Definitely a couple of things. So one, if you have a breach, it's okay. It, it's, it's okay. It happens to a ton of organizations. And I would personally argue that if you're an organization and you have more than five clinicians or providers, you can probably expect a minimum of one breach a year. So if it's happening, ensure that you report it appropriately. Um, it's not necessarily a red mark on your organization that you have a breach. It really, it happens to all organizations. We're all human. We all make mistakes. It's just about ensuring you mitigate it appropriately and you notify the appropriate parties. So do that low pro co assessment, that low probability of compromise or what we also call a breach risk assessment to determine if you have an incident, a violation or a breach on your hands and then take the appropriate steps. Beyond that, we know, we all know there's just a ton of information out there. Healthcare is always changing. So I think utilizing industry resources like MGMA, coming to conferences, really diving in and devoting your full attention for a couple of days or even a couple of hours on a webinar can truly yield great results for you later down the road. So utilize those uh, resources, that content that's out there that's curated for you to help you save time and ultimately help you do what you want to do, which is provide great patient care. That's why we're all here. We want everyone to have a great healthcare experience. So utilize those industry resources. Don't worry, it's not the end of the world if you have a breach, um, and we'll be good to go from there. Yeah, we've covered a lot of really wonderful information. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you would want to make sure to mention? Or I would just also highlight that 
the Office of Civil Rights is still doing their um, their audits. So we heard a lot in 2016 about these phase two audits of about 200 covered entities and a certain number of business associates being audited as the OCR develops a permanent audit program. And they will be looking at some of this information. Um, they will be looking at information related to breaches, violations, incidents, and your policies and procedures, your security risk analysis. So not letting that slip out of mind while maybe it's not such a hot topic right now. If an OCR audit comes across your plate, your email, you have about 10 days to respond. That's been our expectation. So just not letting that slip um, top of mind, noting that it's great to get your ducks in a row and have everything ready to go in case you do get one of those audits. Well, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. It's, you really have such a wealth of information. I appreciate it. For more information about Catherine's session at MGMA 17 and to register for annual conference, visit mgma.org slash podcasts.